Thank you for tuning in to Starkey Multifamily Podcast. Please like, share, and or give me a five-star rating. It really does make a difference. I'm your host, Reed Starkey, and today I have with me Kyle Kovats. Kyle is a National Association of Realtors 30 Under 30. He was at one time selling 15 to $16 million per year in real estate, residential. Uh, he owns a real estate school. He has flipped many houses, done subdivisions, even did some Airbnb with uh, limited success on that one. Um, and now he's into multifamily. Uh, I brought him on here today because he has passively invested $650,000 before he started doing his own multifamily. Uh, and we want to talk about what he looked for and what experiences he gained from that. So Kyle, let's, uh, let's start. What, how did you get involved in the passive? When did you start and how did that work? So about a few years back, um, after doing a lot of, you know, what I would call buying myself jobs. So when you're doing flips, doing subdivisions, doing Airbnb, Airbnb is like running a hotel. And um, I did, you know, make a little bit of money with that, but the time was not worth it. So it's, I wouldn't, listen, I think people could probably do a good job with that. But for me, I'm very time consuming. So I own a real estate school and I'm a full-time realtor as well. So doing those things was just taking up too much time. So I started wanting to look into something where I could still invest in real estate because in my opinion, you know, real estate investing is the best thing that you can invest in in this country. Um, but I didn't want to have to do the day-to-day -day grind of, you know, whether it be, you know, having to babysit, you know, a contractor, having to clean up an apartment after somebody leaves on an Airbnb, um, hiring attorneys to do subdivision processes and things like that. Um, I started looking into syndication and syndication, you know, passively investing in particular, I thought was a tremendous route. Um, basically, I find people who I know, like, and trust who are putting together, you know, multifamily uh, investments and um, take a look at their deals. If the deals look nice and the deals look good, I kind of just hand off my money and I sit back and just wait for checks to come in. What was your first deal and, and how did that come about? So first deal I did was a uh, deal in San Antonio. Um, it was a smaller deal. Um, I actually wound up finding the guy from hearing him on a podcast. Deal's been going well. That's been for about two and a half years now or so. Deal's been going well. It's producing about eight to 9% cash on cash return, which is you know typically what I look for. When I first started off, honestly, um, I didn't have a whole list of syndicators who were putting together deals. So I relied on podcasts like this um, to meet people who were syndicating deals and then uh, scheduling phone calls with them and basically figuring out, you know, what they looked for, what their criteria was and, you know, what the projected returns that they targeted were on deals. Wound up finding out through these podcasts, various events that I could go to where I could just meet more and more people who were syndicating deals. Um, just got put on more and more people's lists and, uh, you know, again, just started vetting sponsors going through, you know, deals that I got sent in my inbox and, um, Kind of took it from there basically so was there something that made you decide to look for those i mean what what got what said multifamily for you yeah so for me uh i mean i'm in real estate so i i see some of the returns that people have gotten you know investing in multifamily so i said to myself you know these are great returns but you know and i would love to buy an apartment complex but by myself i don't have the money to buy an apartment complex so I wanted to just get a piece of the action. And for me, the multifamily fundamentals are, you know, it's always going to be there. I always, you know, in my head, I think, can Amazon knock this out of the market? And the answer is no. Amazon's going to be able to deliver milk to your door within five minutes, you know, in the next number of years. What Amazon can't do is Amazon can't deliver a roof over your head in five minutes. So 
Uh, the fundamentals of multifamily with, you know, student loan debt going up, divorce rates going up, you know, increasingly, you're having just more and more uh, households being formed um, because, you know, again, at the end of the day, you're having people who are renting for a longer period of time because they have so much debt. Um, people are starting families later, getting married later. The fundamentals just made too much sense to me. So um, I'm 28 years old and all of my friends, you know, are all renting. Uh, very, very few of my friends own homes. So, and that's even friends who have gotten married as well. So just the fundamentals and, you know, having the experience myself, seeing what my friends my age are doing, um, you know, it's kind of sold me on multifamily. What are some of the lessons you've learned with some deals? Are there some, some negatives you've found out with different sponsors or? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been fortunate. I've been blessed to, uh, you know, invest in a lot of great deals. I've really only invested in one deal that's gone bad. And, um, you know, honestly, there, there was just a lot of issues with it. Issues from um, renovations not going according to plan. Issues with, um, you know, homeless people on the property. Issues with having to hire security staff. Um, you know, just, just stuff like that. Now, part of this is my fault. I should have done more due diligence before handing money over to these, you know, sponsors who are putting together this deal. But overall, I, I would say I've had a pretty good experience. Uh, lessons wise, you know, people who have done deals, and you could just look at this, you know, people who have done deals between 2011 to 2018, there was very few bad deals that were put together. So, um, just relying strictly on somebody's track record, I don't know if it's always the best avenue because, again, if they did a deal that they closed in, let's say, 2013 and sold in, I don't know, 2015, 16, 17, 18, odds are their investors made money on that deal. So, but again, was it because they were a good sponsor or it was because a rising tide raises all ships? So, there's questions that you should be asking these people hey, what did you do to force appreciation on the property? Or, did the return just come from the market doing well? So I want to see what they did capital renovations wise to, you know, raise the rents, force appreciation. And, um, you know, did they provide value or did the value come from the market just doing better? So, you know, th those are a couple of things that you want to ask because despite track record, if somebody's only been syndicating while the market's been good, you want to know where the return came from. Did the return come from just from the market doing well or from their performance? That's a that's a great point. So you had mentioned when we talked before here that you had some questions. Uh, can you share those questions that you ask? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I, I would say there's 13 questions I typically ask. I, I would say the number one question that you can ask to really get a good determining, you know, determining factor for whether a deal is a good deal or a bad deal to get into is can I see the webinar? Because most people who are sponsoring deals are either doing webinars or phone calls. They should have a recording of that, hopefully. So can I see the webinar for the most recent deal that you sponsored? Um, and can I see your most recent monthly report on that deal? And the reason I'm doing that is I want to see um, what do they typically present when they're raising equity for a deal versus how did that deal actually perform? In other words, I'm trying to compare and contrast what projections were versus what actuals are. So this way I know if I'm going on to this webinar to watch this deal that this person's raising equity for, should I be skeptical that they're going to probably try to overpromise because it's proven to me they've underdelivered, or they're the type where they've actually underpromised and overdelivered. So that's a great question I like to ask. Um, I ask about deal structure, preferred returns or straight equity splits, um, you know, things like that. I ask about acquisition fees. I'm, I'm not really a huge fan of acquisition fees. I understand a sponsor wanting to take one, you know, that's a nominal amount because it is, you know, it's a pain to put together a syndication, but sometimes you see somebody's doing a $40 million acquisition fee and charging a 4%, 3% acquisition fee. 
and I'm thinking to myself, you're buying something for 40 million. You are already outbid every other buyer who bid on this. And on top of this, you're asking your investors to pay three more percent on top of that, an extra 1.2 million, just because I was able to push a deal across the finish line before the deal even performs a dime. Um, so I, I don't think that always aligns interest also because let's say during the due diligence, a couple things pop up that might be grounds for saying, hey, we might want to think twice about this or we might want to negotiate this credit, but the seller's holding steady on the credit. Does the sponsor say, hey, we've got to really push this deal across the table because we close on this, we make 1.2 million. Um, or is the sponsor ethical? Now, part of this is also making sure you're vetting your sponsors too. Um, so those are questions that I ask. Uh, you know, trying to think of some others, I'll pull up a list here. Um, I ask people like, for instance, have you actually physically been to the property and done things like, did things like shop the comp? Um, I want to make sure they didn't just underwrite the deal from across the country and they've never visited the property and just kind of relying on, you know, what they think. Um, I want to make sure they were actually physically there and they shop the comp. Um, asking them about, you know, insurance. I think insurance is extremely important. I am invested in a deal another deal in San Antonio with a tremendous sponsor. Um, and he's a 309 unit property. Uh, there was a fire back in late March, early April. I forget when it was, it was in March or April, but uh, the fire ripped through 24 units, an entire building. He issued us a distribution, a cash flow distribution two weeks after, despite having a fire ripped through 24 units because his insurance was phenomenal. He's very diligent. He's on top of everything. So he had insurance for uh, debris removal, code upgrade insurance, uh, business interruption insurance. So even though 24 units you know, burned down and thank God that everybody was safe, nobody got hurt, he was able to issue a distribution check within two weeks after that, which I found extremely incredible. So that's somebody who, you know, if he puts together a deal, it's basically like, hey, if I'm looking to place money passively, you got a deal, take my money, you know, because I trust him. You know, I, I do have some other questions too. So I, one of the, this might sound like a weird question, but I actually think it's a question that is important to ask. I ask sponsors if their family and friends are investing in a deal. And I know it might be a little weird of a question to ask, but the reason I ask this is because the people you least want to let down are your family and friends. So if your family and friends are investing into a deal, I think there's an extra level of accountability. And again, everybody should be held accountable. But if your friends and family's money is in this deal, I think there's an extra level of accountability on top of that. So I know it's a strange question when you hear it, but it's, it's, it's a question that I do like to ask, though. So that's an interesting point. What if, um, and maybe you haven't run into it, what if they're doing a, a 506C where it's accredited only and, and maybe their friends and family are not accredited? Sure. Um, interesting. To be honest, I've never invested in a 506C, so I don't know. Um, I've only invested in 506Bs because I, I kind of like, now, granted, I could have friends who I know, like, and trust who do a 506C. Um, who I've already vetted, but uh, I do like to vet my sponsors. I do like to invest with people I know, like, and trust. So if it's somebody I don't know and I've never met before, they're doing a syndication, it's the 506D. I am accredited, but um, I'm probably just not going to jump right into that deal because I didn't get to know the person yet. I do like to get to know the sponsor. Um, I like to have conversations with them, you know, see what they're about uh, before I do invest. So I've never been put in that position because I've, I've actually never invested in the 506D, only 506Bs. So you talked a, a little bit about, um, you know, vetting the deal and then you said you vet the sponsor, but how, where do you start? Like, how do you look into that person and, and get an idea of who they are? Yeah, for me, honestly, a lot of it is just literally meeting them and getting to know them and looking them in the eye. 
Um, and I don't like look them in the eye and be like, all right, let's see, is this person a bullshitter? But I mean, what I mean by that is I, uh, I, I just want to get to know them on a more personal level. So I want to go out to dinner with them. I want to have drinks with them. I just, you know, want to shoot the shit with them basically. So I want to see what they're about. And, um, that's the first thing that I do. Um, if I don't really get, a, I get, if I get a vibe from somebody, like I don't trust them off the bat, I'm probably not going to invest with them. I do like to just simply get to know people. So that's really the first step. After that is when I start going through these questions. And the first question you could start off with before somebody even has a deal, if you're just determining whether if they have a future deal you're going to invest with them, just ask them, you know, what's the most recent deal you did? Can I have a copy of the webinar? And can I also have a copy of your most, most recent monthly report? Because again, it's going to be something that's going to show you the actuals versus what their pro forma was. And you want to, again, kind of compare and contrast that. You, you talked a little bit about the splits and the fees and so forth. What are some things that, like on the split, um, that you look for? I personally look for straight equity splits. I'm I'm not a fan of preferred returns, and the only reason I'm not a fan of preferred returns is because my concern is, let's say they're offering like an eight percent preferred return, and uh, in year one they get me four percent. Well, that means in year two they got to get me twelve percent to catch up. And um, my thought is, what if they can't catch up? Then they're really not making any money on the deal. And the money that they will make is at time of disposition. Now, when they do eventually sell the property. So would that cause them to sell the property at an inopportune time if they've fallen so far behind on the press uh, where they are not, you know, taking any cash flow besides maybe like an asset management fee as an example. So that's my one, you know, real concern with the preferred return is if they start falling too far behind, you know, does it disalign interest? Does it cause them to sell at a, uh, at a time that's, you know, not really the best time to sell? Um, I like straight equity splits, um, where it's just straight. There's nothing else to it. You know, no waterfall structure, things like that. Just a straight equity split. Um, I'd like to see, you know, 20, 80 or below. So for example, 20, you know, percent to the GP, 80% to the LP, um, or below, um, asset management fee, hopefully no more than 2%, you know, ideally. Um, I'd also, you know, would prefer, if the asset manager is doing something with that asset, asset management fee in regards to putting it back into the property, even if it's some little stuff, and I don't mean all of the asset management fee, but maybe even just a little to host like a 4th of July barbecue for the tenants um, to have like an Easter bunny go around Easter and do like an Easter egg hunt for the tenants kids um, to do some kind of like Halloween thing, you know, where there's like a trunk or treat, you know, type of deal. So, um, just basic stuff like that. I'm pretty big on community building. I think when sponsors build a community um, within the apartment community, I think that increases retention. And I think tenant turnover is a cost not enough sponsors actually account for. Um, so any measures that can be taken to increase retention and provide you know, a better quality of living for the tenants um, is something that I'm interested in. So if somebody is willing to uh, reinvest part of their asset management fee into you know, doing things for the tenants, I do find that pretty valuable. It's an interesting concept of returning that asset management fee in some way, shape, or form. I've never, I've never heard it done before, and I, I like it. And I like your point, and I, I want to go into it more because I, I think I know what your answer is going to be. But the 80-20 split, and a, and below or above, depending on how you want to look at it. But why? So you're saying, to clarify, you're saying the most that you would want to take is 80 percent. So like a 90-10 would be no good. Well, no, 90-10 I'd be happy with because 90-10 would mean that, you know, only 10% is going to the GP, 90% to the LP. 
So I, I'd be cool with that. But, you know, again, on a, on a straight equity split. Now, if somebody were to do like, let's say a 70-30 straight equity split, there better be some insane upside on this deal that nobody else on the planet knew about because that's a, I call it a tax. It's a pretty high tax to pay as a limited partner um, when somebody's taking 30% of the you know, total deal for being the GP on that deal. So I think, uh, I think at, at 20%, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fair shape. Um, you know, somebody's willing to go lower, you know, even better for me as an LP. You know, I just want to, again, at the end of the day, you want to make sure the GP is providing value though. Okay. So, uh, I guess what I was thinking we were going to go, I guess the reason I was backwards on that with you is, um, so generally, uh, so we, we look at it a little bit differently from, from a passive side is the, the same way you look at the pref. If they're getting, if they're shrinking their portion down so much just to make the numbers work for me. So from a passive investor, you want the numbers to fit. You have your own criteria, which we'll have to ask you that later, but right. So, so you need a certain cash on cash, a certain IRR, but if they had to tweak their numbers so far, shrink their numbers so far to get you that, that scares me a little bit too from the passive side. Yeah. I mean, I Tell you, I'm, I'm in a bunch of deals. One of the deals that I'm in right now, I passively invested in, closed in uh, in Fort Worth back in September. Um, I have to check. I think that's a 12.88 split, but I'm getting 13% cash on cash in year one on that deal, which is great. I mean, mm-hmm. year one cash on cash. If I get five, six percent, I'm happy because usually year one you're going through the you know capital plan and um, you're having more turnover, so usually there's less cash flow in year one. But um, I think. And, and this is another thing too. I think some people are a little reluctant as a passive investor to invest with a GP who's doing their first deal. I could tell you the two best deals I'm invested in were two first time GPs um, because I feel they charge a little bit less as far as that straight equity split it might be 1486 might be, you know, 1288, something like that. Because when somebody's first starting off, if they're in this for the long haul, not in it to make a quick buck, the best way to build up, you know, repeat investors to provide good returns. To provide good returns. If you take less money, yeah, you're taking less money on these first few deals, but you're, you know, proving yourself. You're showing that you are providing good returns. So these two first-time sponsors who I invested with in, again, Fort Worth in September and um, a deal in, uh, in Lawrence, Kansas in uh, September, that one closed as well. Um, they're doing a great job. So when they do their next indications and I'm looking to invest money passively, I've been in deals with them. I know them. I like them. I trust them. I've seen how they performed. It's pretty much going to be, I'm just going to glance over their deal and say, Hey, here's my money. That's a, you know, a valuable point. You know, the credibility that you can grow and the repeat investors, you know, it's not, it's not about just getting the one deal done and then you move on. It's, it's imperative that you take care of those investors because they're going to come back. And so that's, that's a valuable, a valuable point. And then they're going to have friends. You know, if, if you have money, your friends usually have money. Your family usually has money. It's people, yeah. people with similar bank accounts usually hang out together. Right. It's, it just is the way it is. And, and then, so you're going to have more recommendations from there. Even if you have, you know, and, and the key is kind of like you said, it's not when it, it's not when the property does good that you can really find out because it could just be the economy went up so much that they did everything wrong, but still gave you a profit. Mm-hmm. It's when things go wrong, are they communicating it with you? You know, and, and how quickly are they communicating those problems and how quickly are they solving them? Do are they taking actions or, 
Um, so that's that's valuable. Um, now you talked a little bit about not to jump around, but you said the thirteen questions, and I, I might have missed them. Did you read all thirteen? I didn't read all thirteen. I can go through them now. So one of the first questions I ask is, you know, is the GP putting their own money into a deal? Um, and I want to know if are they putting their own money into the deal, or is the money that they're saying they're investing themselves coming from the acquisition fee? So if like the GP says I'm investing. Um, 250,000 of my own money into this deal, but they're taking a $250,000 acquisition fee. They're really not putting any of their own money into that deal. Mm -hmm. So I want to make sure they have some skin in the game. It, they don't have to put a ton of their own money into the deal, but at the bare minimum, they should be investing the minimum investment in the deal. Um, I always ask, is there an acquisition fee? Again, as I spoke about earlier, I'm not a huge fan of these large outlandish acquisition fees unless there's something that they did to get that deal that I don't know about, maybe they got the deal off market. They were the only buyer to know about it and they got it at a ridiculous discount. Okay. That makes sense. But if you're charging again, like on a $40 million acquisition, let's say a 4% acquisition fee, you're basically, you outbid everybody. And now you're not only outbid everybody, but when you're in that price point, you're outbidding institutional money. Um, and on top of that, you're asking your investors to pay an extra 1.6 to you, you know, for just, landing the deal and beating out everybody else. I, I don't think it aligns interest so well. Um, I asked about the asset management fee. There's always going to be an asset management fee, you know, hopefully 2% or less. Um, and again, as I said, I want to see if they're going to be doing anything with that to put it back into the property. Um, I asked about, you know, is it a preferred rate of return or straight equity split? Talked about that earlier. I, I do prefer the straight equity split, hopefully uh, no higher than 20% to the GP. Um, I ask about, you know, a time of sale. Now, very standard, obviously, that at time of sale, you as a limited partner, you're going to get your initial capital back before the GP touches anything. But I just like to ask that question. And uh, I want to see at time of sale, is there going to be some kind of disposition fee, um, which is more or less just a commission for selling the property, uh, typically above a certain price. Um, but I just, you know, I, I want to know that. I, I haven't been in any deals that have done disposition fees, um, but, um, you know, I'm sure I'll be in one eventually that has some kind of disposition fee to it. But if there is, I want to know what it is. Um, as I spoke about earlier, I, I do ask the sponsors, have you actually physically visited the, visited the property and shop the comp? Um, I think it's important that they physically be there, not just underwriting from across the country and just say, hey, I'm raising equity for this deal. Um, I want to make sure they were actually there. Uh, I, I always ask, what's the number one concern you have with this deal? And if they say, oh, we have no concerns, they're lying. That everybody has a concern when they do a deal. So maybe you have some kind of um, speculative other income that you're going to be doing. Maybe you want to start charging for reserve parking spots because some of the neighboring properties have that. Maybe that's a concern of yours that, hey, all the neighboring properties have it. We've just never done it here yet. So I am a little bit concerned. I'm hoping we'll be able to get this, but that's probably my number one concern on this deal. So things like that. So asking about maybe they have a CapEx plan where they're spending 6000 per door. And they're going to be resurfacing countertops. They're going to be um, repainting and glossing the cabinets, new brush nickel hardware, new brush nickel lighting fixtures, new appliance package, vinyl plank floors, new vanity, new backsplash, uh, low flow toilets, low flow shower heads, things like that. Um, maybe it's in an area that they're going to be doing that first in. That hasn't been done at any other apartment community. Maybe it's a concern that they won't be able to command the rent pump that they're thinking about. So I, I just want to see, because if they're being honest, they're going to have some concerns. I just want to see what concerns they do have. Um, 
very important question that I ask is how did you come up with your number for property taxes? Depending on the state that you're in, property taxes could you know make or break a deal. Uh, you could be doing a deal in, let's say, in Dallas or in, in Tarrant County, as an example, and maybe uh, the current T12 property tax for 70000 But after you buy it, um, after sale, the property tax might go up to 120. Well, if your um, underwriting just projected tax would go up to 75 because you're not from that area and you don't know how taxes work there, I mean, that, that's, a big, that's a big screw up because you just underestimated the property tax by 50,000. And for simple numbers in my head at a 5% cap rate, that's a million dollar you know, mistake. Um, so that, that's something I want to make sure that they've actually done their due diligence on the property taxes. Um, I find the best way, ask your property management company. Um, they should be able to tell you that. The brokers are always going to tell you they think the property tax will be a little bit lower than what they really will be. Um, so ask your property management company because, again, at the end of the day, you're developing a, a good relationship with them, and uh, they should be able to provide that type of information to you. Um, the insurance I spoke about earlier, definitely really important question. want to make sure that the property is properly insured. I'm investing 100,000 into a deal, 150,000 into a deal with you. I want to make sure if like a fire happens, if a tornado happens, if a major flood or hurricane happens and the whole community or a portion of the community is destroyed, there is coverage for that. So is it actual cash value? Is it going to be a replacement cost? Are you getting debris removal? Are you getting code upgrade insurance? Um, are you getting uh, are you getting business interruption insurance? And how long is that good for? Is it good for six months, 12 months, 18 months? So these are questions I want to know. I just want to make sure that my capital I'm putting in the deal is protected against, you know, some kind of potential natural disaster or fire or something like that. Um, a question I always ask, because believe it or not, some sponsors that I've invested with, they don't tell you about all the upside on the deal because they don't want to get you too excited and then under deliver. So I'll, I'll ask them this question privately, not in front of others. I'll say, what additional upside do you believe there is on this deal that you haven't spoken about yet? And usually it's one of those, all right, you know, don't tell anybody I'm saying this, but here's what I think the additional upside would be. I just don't want to overpromise this to people. So I do ask that question because there might be some extra opportunities. They just aren't confident enough in those extra opportunities to kind of, you know, explain those to the past investors. Um, but sometimes you'd be surprised how much additional upside there could be on a deal. So sometimes there's not, but I do ask that question in case there is. Um, I ask what their relationship is with the property management company and does the property management company manage similar properties locally? I want to know that because I want to know what the property management company's experience is in that area. I don't want a property management company who specializes in, you know, A-class luxury apartments um, managing like a, a C-class apartment in a blue collar area. They're just not going to be a good fit for that property. Um, and also I want to make sure they manage other properties nearby so they know the area. So if they're getting their projections from the property management company, hey, um, yeah, this should cost like 4,000 a door to do these interior renovations that you wanna do. Well, are they just guessing that or have they done that on nearby properties? So I, I think it's important that they have a good local presence too. Um, and again, as I spoke about earlier, like, you know, what's the most recent deal that you did? And can I see the webinar for it? And can I see your most recent monthly report? Again, I wanna kind of compare and contrast what was the projections versus what are the actuals there? Um, and the last question, the weirdest question I said earlier, um, are any of your friends and family investing in this deal? And again, I, I just think there's an extra level of accountability with people when their uh, friends and family actually invest in the deal. I think those are good. Um, so I, I have a couple of questions. So you talked about a disposition fee, which 
I've never seen it called a disposition fee. I've seen it a capital transaction fee. Uh -huh. Have you not seen those either or? Um, I've, I've invested in any deals that have had them. Um, when I've been on webinars, when, they've, when I've heard sponsors talk about it on deals I haven't invested in, um, I've heard it referred to as a disposition fee. Um, maybe it's called that too. I, I, again, I've never invested in a deal that's had one, so I'm not all that familiar with it. I've only heard it on some webinars because I, I get on a bunch of webinars for people who are raising equity. I'm pretty picky in the deals that I do choose. Um, you know, I, I have certain investment criteria that I like to stick to, certain, you know, space that I play in. Um, I like B and C class workforce housing, you know, nothing too fancy. I don't like luxury. I think they're overbuilding luxury in the country right now. So I focus in that B and C class space. I look for anything that can produce me um, an eight to 10% cash on cash return over a five year hold. Um, the average annualized return, honestly, I do look at it, but I, I don't put too much weight into it because a lot of that is um, dependent on external factors, macro factors, like where interest rates and cap rates go. I know a lot of people like to say, you know, uh, cap rates are not directly correlated to interest rates, but there is a correlation there. So when cap, when uh, interest rates start going up, typically cap rates go up a little bit too. So if we do get into a point in time, which we eventually will, when interest rates start going up, cap rates, you know, will eventually go up a little bit, you know, I think at least. Um, so I want to make sure that the uh, sponsor has accounted for the fact that, yeah, you might have bought it at like a five and a half cap, but don't project you're going to sell it at a five and a half cap because as time goes on, I'd rather be more conservative and say, we bought it at a five and a half cap in five years, we're projecting we'll sell it at a six and a half cap. I'd prefer that over them saying we're going to sell it again at a five and a half cap. Um, so just, just basic stuff like that. You know, th those are, you know, some of the, uh, some of the things that, you know, I keep in mind with my investment criteria. So what about, um, what about the risk of the deal? So um, a deal that maybe is taking on a bridge loan and a massive, you know, massive uh, renovation compared to a fairly stabilized deal that's going straight to agency debt. Do you take consideration into that? Do you have a preference one way or the other? Definitely. I, I, I won't invest in a deal right now that has a bridge loan on it personally. I just don't like the concept of being, you know, kind of stuck if you're in a bridge loan where you have a maturity date that you, you know, are, are you know, kind of under the gun for. What happens if your bridge loan's coming due and, uh, you know, lending is dried up? We're in a 14-month recession and lending is dried up. I just don't like the idea of that. Um, I feel right now from a lot of the webinars that I've been on of, you know, equity that's getting raised, um, I see bridge loans being used to make deals work that otherwise wouldn't work. And that's risky to me because a lot of these bridge loan deals I'm seeing put together, it seems to be, there's got to be some kind of coaching program out there that's teaching this structure, but it seems to be a, a two, three year bridge loan, 8% preferred return, like 15,000 in CapEx per door. Um, so very, very speculative because you're buying a property that's not stabilized. It's under 90% occupancy, under 85% economic. You're going in there. You're trying to do all these, um, you know, renovations that very well may work, you know, right? So they, they very well may work. Um, but there's a lot of speculation involved there. And on top of that, you're under the gun with a bridge loan. So I personally will only invest in deals that have long-term agency debt placed on them. Um, 10, 12-year agency debt, Fannie, Freddie debt, stabilized property, 90% plus occupancy. Uh, um, so for me personally, I just, it's, it's less riskier and, uh, and I prefer that. So let's, let's talk about the, the length of the hold then. You mentioned like 10, 12 year financing. Typically, 
I, I think from a passive investor, from the feedback I get, five years is optimal. Mm -hmm. um, but as you may know, when you run the numbers, the longer you hold it, the better those numbers look. Mm -hmm. Do you have a preference on when this per, when the expected exit is? If I look at IRR, which uh, which accounts for the time that you've held the property for too, um, IRR is an important number to look at because yeah, you're right. If you do hold a deal for ten years and you put a hundred grand into it, if you get you know your hundred turns into two hundred, you know that's you doubled your money. But it took ten years, and that's a ten percent average annualized return in your IRR. I don't have a calculator in front of me right now, but I would assume it's probably closer to five percent on something like that. Um, so that's not a great deal. Um, the thing is, though, when you're getting into a deal that has 10, 12-year fixed rate agency debt on it, um, there's going to be a prepayment penalty, whether it be yield maintenance or, or step down. Um, so you want to, you have to kind of walk a fine line there. If the deal is going to sell in year two, and it was, let's say, a 10-year loan, there's going to be eight-year term left on it, but you've probably eaten up all the interest only at that point in time. So the loan's not going to be as attractive to somebody for an assumption, but you know, let's say your prepayment penalty on that is, I don't know, let's say 600 grand. Uh, it could really eat into the return. So you might, as the sponsor, have to find somebody who will assume that, which might in turn cause you to sell for a little less price. But if the return's good, when you take all that into account, you still do it, right? So, um, but yeah, the, the longer you do hold it, sure, you know, the, the total return number comes out larger, but I, I more so look at IRR. So if, if someone brings you, well, let's let's talk about those numbers first. So what uh, what IRR do you look for? Cash on cash, total return. So you yeah. said IRR is probably the most important to you. Yeah. Well, for, for me, actually, I would say cash on cash is probably the most important. IRR is second. Um, cash on cash. The reason why that's most important to me is because it's predictable. Um, I, I like to buy for cash flow. If a deal's cash flowing it's a good steady asset. Times are good, times are bad, cash flow is coming in. Um, a lot of the return on the back end is really out of your hands. You know, it's, it's just macro market controlled. Um, so with the IRR, with the average annualized return, a, a you know, chunk of that is gonna come from what happened overall macro in the market. So what would be ideal for IRR? What would be ideal is anything probably higher than 13, 14%. Um, but again, a lot of that is dependent on things that are out of your control, both as the GP and as the LP, um, on what goes on in the macro market. So I would say ideally, you, you know, you want to be over 13% um, for IRR, 14%, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, but again, I also keep in mind that it's nothing that the GP can really control because a lot of that comes into what has happened in the macro market. So cash flow, I think, is the one thing they can control. And that's where I, lo I look the most. What numbers on cash flow or cash on cash do you look for? I look for anywhere between eight to 10% um, on average on a five year hold. So if I can get higher, you know, get higher, as I told you, I'm in one deal in Fort Worth right now that in year one um, is producing 13% cash on cash return. Um, that's really good. You know, I, I don't anticipate that. So that deal's going phenomenal. But if I can just get, you know, a steady eight to 10% cash on cash, um, that's, that's a good deal for me. Are you, are you comfortable talking about the deal that didn't do well? Can we ask details on that one or do you uh, want to keep that private? What the details are. So I, I don't want to like talk about like who the people are who put the deal together or anything. No, like no. Because, you know, they're good guys. Um, they, they are good guys. I, I like the guys. Um, 
there was just not enough due diligence done on the deal, unfortunately. So they're good guys. I like the guys. I have no problem with them. I, they should have done a little bit more due diligence on that. Um, as I said, that's probably the biggest issue, not doing enough due diligence, not spending enough time at the property. So if I'm like the GP on a deal, I'm going to go to the property at all different times of the day, you know, when, when we're in the acquisition process and the due diligence process. I want to see what is it like in the morning? What's it at like in the afternoon? What's it like at night? What's it like at those weird hours in the morning, like the 2 a.m.? I want to see what's going on there. Is there like people drinking outside, hanging out on cars at 2 a.m.? That's probably not a community I want to invest in. Um, is it 9 o'clock in the morning and the parking lot's full? Nobody's probably working then. So um, these are things that I like to do, and I think if these sponsors had kind of done that, up front, they would have seen the homeless people living at the property. Uh, they would have known they probably uh, needed some security staff. Um, they would have known that it's a little rougher community than they thought. Um, so just little stuff like that, because like for instance, when I'm a GP on a deal, I do some like informal due diligence. I just spend time at the property. I'll go dressed up, you know, I'm 28 years old. So I'll go dressed up as like, you know, I'm just a regular you know, tenant there. I'll just walk around. I mean, I don't wear anything fancy. I'll wear like a pair of mesh shorts and a t-shirt just so I, I want to kind of fit in with the, with the community there and walk around. So I don't like stick out. Like I don't go dressed in a suit and they're like, who's this guy in a suit walking around this place? So um, I just walk around. I'll, I'll walk around the you know, nearby areas, just, you know, generally walking around. I'll walk to the nearest liquor store. I'll walk to the nearest supermarket. So like to give you an example, if I walk into the supermarket and I'm thinking this community right here, I can go in and spend you know, whatever amount of money per door. And I think we can convert this E class into more of a B plus asset. But I go into the supermarket and it's basically, uh, you know, guys who are in there with like, you know, just long grown out beards and not to be a stylish beard, more of a like I drank for two weeks straight and I forgot to save for two weeks type of beard. Um, I, I want to see like, you know, what is it like there? Is that guy going to care if I put in, you know, granite, if I put in, you know, uh, quartz, if I put in, you know, Carrera marble, if I put in stainless steel appliances, or does that guy just want a refrigerator that's going to cool his beer within five minutes? So um, you want to really get a, a feel for that. And the best way you can do it, go to the most nearby supermarket. It gives you a good, you know, really feel for, okay, what is this area comprised of? What are the demographics? Older, younger, races, creeds, colors, national origin. Um, again, you could get a good feel generally for that area. You'll be able to find that stuff out through the census. But having boots on the ground and actually going there and just interacting with people, I, I think is a really good thing to do. That's valuable. Um, so let's talk about how you transitioned into uh, being a general partner and a sponsor yourself. So um, you've done all your passive investing and, and you say, I'm ready to do my own deal. How did that happen? Did you find one or did you, were you actively looking for one or how did that happen? So I I, 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 so I'm a part of a mentorship program, uh, Brad Sumrock, uh, based out of Dallas. And um, through that group, there's probably close to a thousand people in there, um, a lot of which are passive investors only, um, some of which are GPs. So um, I, I basically, after getting to know people, I you know, reached out to a couple people and I said, hey, I'd love to go after a deal with you if you, you know, are finding a deal. So um, these two guys, uh, you know, Brent and Randy, found a great deal in Phoenix that I really liked, and they'd shot it over to me. And I said, hey, um, you guys need another partner on this deal, because I would really love to join this deal. Um, I, I want to place a lot of capital myself in it. 
And I think I have a lot of friends, family members, and associates who would want to do so as well. And they said, you know, we actually you know, are looking for another partner if you want to join us on the GPT side. Um, so I joined them on the GPT side. Um, I have, uh, my father lived in actually Phoenix for a little bit. The deal was in Phoenix. Uh, my father lived out there for a little bit. Um, I have a very close family friend who's out there. Uh, so booked a flight out there before I committed to them. I liked all the underwriting. I liked everything like that. Booked a flight out there, visited the property, met with the uh, prospective property manager, toured the property, toured all the comps, did my walking around of the area and things like that, all the weird stuff that I do. And, uh, you know, I committed to them at that point in time. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm in. Let's do it. So I uh, wound up doing that deal. And uh, deal's been doing great. So we project, it's, it's predominantly, well, it's all two and three bedroom units, predominantly three bedrooms. Um, it's 120 units. Uh, about close to 90 of them are three bedrooms. And around 30-ish of them are, uh, are two bedrooms. Um, and we're already above pro forma rents in year one, um, the surrounding area. I don't know if you've read any about Phoenix right now, but Phoenix is just on fire. Um, mm. rents are going up, population moving in, you know, it's, it's the fundamentals are absolutely phenomenal there right now. So we're already ahead of projections and, um, the deal's doing really good. That deal closed on, I think it was February 22nd, 222, I believe it was. So um but yeah so that deal is doing well and uh yeah i mean the, the whole key when you're you know first starting off is you get to you're not going to do a deal probably by yourself like your first indication you're going to want to partner up with other people and even if it's not your first indication i think partnering up with other, other people is valuable too um find people you know like and trust find people you know their track record find people who compliment you as far as complimenting your skill set so uh brent as an example on this deal uh, he, he is an engineer and he's overseen billion dollar, you know, construction projects, engineering wise. Uh, Randy flips tons of houses. Randy flips in some years, like close to a hundred houses. So really, really strong construction and engineering background, very analytical, very go-getter. And then, you know, we all kind of complement each other. Um, and, you know, you want to find people whose skill sets are different than yours. You don't just want to pair up with somebody who has the identical skill set as you. If you do that, you guys really aren't going to be able to help each other, and you're probably going to butt heads a little bit too. Interesting. So, um, I like I like your aspect on partnering. I think it's critical. It's this is not like flipping a house where mm -hmm. you have a hundred thousand and you can make it happen, or you know, two hundred, depending on your market. But you can get into flipping a house or doing single family rentals rather cheap, and there's no need for partners. Uh, because it's just small scale, but you're right. When you start getting into multi-million dollar raises and property management companies, you need more than one person. It's, it's not just a simple flip a switch deal. Right. So I agree. Uh, so what are your plans in the future? Where are you going and where, where is this going to take you? So I'm uh, really just, I'm targeting deals right now on the, on the GT side in uh, Central Florida, the I-4 corridor, Orlando, Lakeland, Tampa, those areas there. Um, I'm actually going to be spending a lot more time in that area. Um, my girlfriend actually just got a promotion through work and a job transfer to Orlando, so she's actually moving down there. Um, so there's going to be a lot of weeks uh, where I'm spending like Thursday through Sunday down there. Um, really a lot of weeks. Uh, almost every week for the most part, but uh, I'm still going to be in New Jersey, you know, every single week because I own a real estate school up here. I still sell homes up here as a realtor. Um, I'm going to be back every Sunday to work with my clients, you know, as far as, you know, doing open houses, showing houses, things like that. But 
Um, I'm going to be down there and have boots on the ground. I'm going to get to know those markets really well and um, going to be looking to invest both, you know, actively and passively in those markets because now that I'll have a foothold there, um, I'll be able to get to know the area, you know, a lot better than I would, you know, living in New Jersey. Yeah, that's great. So, um, so you're looking to take on mostly the general partnership side and then maybe some limited partner as well. Yeah, I'm going to do a little bit. Um, if I see a good deal that comes across my desk and I have some cash laying around that I need to invest, um, I'm not opposed to still investing passively. Um, I'm still going to be investing passively. So, and uh, you know, the tax deductions are certainly phenomenal too. I, I like those a lot. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. So, so Kyle, how can somebody get a hold of you if they need to get reach out to you? If somebody wants to get in touch with me, they could just email me. My email is just my name. It's kylekovats at gmail.com. And um, you can always shoot me a text if you want to you know, chat sometime. I'll give you my cell phone number. It's 201-403-1314. Um, I'm a realtor, so I'm used to getting random calls all day. <laughs> Very good. So if you want to list your house in New Jersey, is it? Yeah, New Jersey. So you can reach out to them as well. And, and then I guess you got your own realtor agents training, right? Yeah, so we have a real estate school up here in uh, Bergen County in Maywood. Um, Kovats Real Estate School, my grandfather started it in 1973. Uh, he passed away in 2014, um, and I've been the lead instructor and director since that time. Um, so I you know, teach all the pre-licensed classes. So I was actually teaching today until 2 o'clock, and I uh, got to teach, uh, teach again tonight at 7 o'clock. That's crazy. Well, you're <laughs> definitely a busy, a busy person, that's for sure. So, well, thank you, Kyle. I appreciate you coming out uh, or reserving the time to talk and we'll uh, look forward to talking to you again. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, Reed. All right. Thanks, Kyle. Take care. Bye.